Hello, and welcome to On the Marie Curie Couch, the podcast that aims to break down taboos and start open, honest conversations about death and dying. I'm Jason Davidson. I'm a social worker by profession, and I've worked in palliative care, hospice care, and bereavement support services for more than a decade. Each episode, we'll be speaking to a well-known guest to find out about how they feel about their own mortality and how their personal experience of bereavement has shaped the way they live their life. Today, I'm on the Marie Curie couch with Chris Kamara. Chris is a retired professional footballer and manager. During his footballing career, he played for Portsmouth, Swindon and Brentford, as well as a host of other clubs, and he appeared in more than 600 league matches. Chris is now a presenter and commentator on Sky Sports. He also regularly appears on Soccer AM and Soccer Saturday, and is a co-presenter of Ninja Warrior UK. Chris and his wife Anne have been married for 38 years and have two sons, Ben and Jack. I'll be talking to Chris today via a video call. Chris Kamara, welcome to the Marie Curie Couch. Thank you, Jason. Can I begin, Chris, today by asking if you could tell us about a significant bereavement you've experienced in your life? Well, um, funny enough, I've got three significant ones that always go to the top of my head. Um, And funny enough, my dad's not one of them. And the reason why that is, my dad was ill for quite a while. So you get an acceptance when something like that happens. It's when somebody dies suddenly. I have to say, my mum was ill for a long time. She had breast cancer. She was looked after by a Marie Curie nurse. But the thing that haunts me with that one is I was... It was Easter Bank holiday, and uh, she'd been telling me she was really, really ill, um, and I knew she was on her last legs. And uh, I phoned her on the Sunday, the Easter Bank holiday Sunday, and said to her, the producer of Soccer Saturday had asked me to uh, cover another game on the Bank holiday Monday. And so I rang her and... And I said to her, look, I can't come tomorrow now, Mum, but I'll be there first thing on Tuesday morning. Is that okay?" And she went, "Mm, I'm not sure. So she knew she was going. And unfortunately, I went to Queen's Park Rangers that day, um, covered the game, got back in my car afterwards, got back to Wakefield. And the next morning, about eight o'clock when I was in the bathroom, getting ready to go to Middlesbrough to see her, we got the dreaded phone call that she died that night. So that haunts me massively. You know, I I always think back, why did I do it? Why did I go to work? Sorry, uh, this always does me in. Why did I go to work that day? You know, um, one last chance. We all want one. And Chris, what a, what a decision to have to make, though, at the time, you know, it's kind of, you, 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 you're, you're stuck between your work commitments, your commitment to your mum, knowing what's best, you were going to go the following morning, it wasn't like it was a week, and 
the decision was made, wasn't it? You know, at the time, for whatever reason. Yeah, so you've got to move on. It happened. Uh, the other two significant deaths that haunt me um, is I played with a footballer at Leeds called Gary Speed. And it's 10 years this year um, that he actually took his own life. And I've never been able to work out why in any way, shape or form. I was with him two weeks before and I know people say these things, oh, he was happy and everything else like that. But he was, he really didn't have what I thought a care in the world. He had it all. He had a lovely family. He'd had a fabulous career. And now he was enjoying the media side as well as being the manager of Wales. So that one haunts me. Uh, 27th of November. 2011, so 10 years this year. And bereavement by suicide, Chris, I think as you've just described, leaves so many unanswered questions. Yeah, yeah, well, the coroner treated it as misadventure, so it wasn't, you know, it wasn't wrote down as that. I, I don't know, you know, it's one of those that baffles me and upsets me. And the other one was a great friend of mine, um, who lived not too far from where I live. We did everything together. We went on holiday together. Um, he became a real close friend of the family. And uh, uh, we'd been told by his partner that he was in um, Pinderfields Hospital in Wakefield because he'd been coughing up some blood. So me and Anne went to the hospital, my wife Anne, we went to the hospital, Pinderfields, and he was, the curtain was covered round him because they told us where he was. And uh, there was a doctor with him. Anyway, the doctor eventually went, drew back the curtains, and we'd been waiting in the corridor. So we went in. And, uh, and my usual bubbly self, taking the mickey out of him, saying, well, what are you faking now? And he'd just been diagnosed with lung cancer. And the doctor had told him that, uh, you know, they didn't think they could do anything for him. And I can see there three still painful deaths and memories to, to be living with now, Chris. Yeah, it's hard. Um, but it's, you know, because I've got such a lovely life, a great life, great family, um, that is always put in the back of your mind. It's only now when you talk about it, you know, and uh, that it all comes flooding back. If it's okay with you, could we go back to talk a bit more about your mum? Yeah, yeah. Well, my mum was everything to me, um, as most mums are, you know. She was the one that defended me when I was growing up, looked after me, was always there. So I had this closeness with my mum that, you know, was everything I wanted her to be happy. Um, she had a tough life as well. We had a tough life. She uh, was abused as much as a black person in Middlesbrough because in the words, of the people back in those days, she was an 
and lover. So she suffered as, as much racism as a black person. So she fought through all that. So she was my hero. So she was a white woman, yeah, mum? Yes, she was, yeah. And, and, and from Middlesbrough? Yes. Mm. So that's where you grew up? Yeah, we grew up in uh, Park End, an estate in Middlesbrough. We were the first black family on the estate, uh, one of the first black families in Middlesbrough. Um, so you can imagine back in those days, the ignorance and the abuse that we got. But it makes you a stronger person. You get through it all. I just, you know, I admire my dad um, for what he did and how he got through it and brought us all up uh, and those types of things. People talk about racism today and it's still prevalent. It's still going on, which is crazy. In 2021, you know, 2020, we saw the George Floyd lose his life because of the color of his skin. But way back then, it was 50 million times, and this is not an exaggeration, uh, worse than it is today. And I think, as you just described, growing up in the Northeast in, you know, I, I don't know what, what, what year it was. Oh, it was a long time. I, I, I was born in the late 50s, and so I, you know, was around in the 60s and early 70s in Middlesbrough, I think. And there was predominantly kind of white working class communities. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, that, that's how it was. You know, a lot of the programmes on t television abused black people, you know. So that was it. And you, you either had to accept it, which I did, because my dad said, you know, you have to go along with this. Basically, if you fight it, you won't get anywhere. You know, so I, I became hardened to it. And I have to say, and it's weird, it is really weird. And my wife said to me only last year when I got upset on a television program, what's it with you? You've always been able to handle this. And I said, yeah, I don't know. I can't answer it. I can't answer why I get upset about what's gone on in the past when I've never done that before. And I wonder whether as, you know, we age and our lives evolve, whether, um, you know, we, we look at the past differently and um, we see it differently and, and it, it has a different emotional impact on us as, as we just age and go through life ourselves, Chris. I don't, I don't know whether that makes sense. but Yeah, I suppose so. But, uh, you know, like I said, I'm not, I'm not really a one to wallow in my own sympathy. And that's why it's strange that I get upset now talking about the past. Mm -hmm. So your mum, she became ill. I mean, you said she had breast cancer. Was it a, was it a long illness, Chris, for your mum? Yes. Well, I'm, I told you, she was a trooper. No doubt about that. Um, she had um, thrombosis of both her legs, so her legs were in a complete state. I don't know if you've ever seen anyone with nightmarish thrombosis. Um, she had that, and she had breast cancer to go with it. And uh, But she wasn't the moaning type either. 
you know, she really wasn't. Um, she was the, she had one brother and three sisters. Um, and those three sisters used to come to our house, um, certainly in the last two or three years of her dying, more than they'd ever done the previous years. And that's when she became sort of like the focal point of not just our family, but the whole family. And can I ask, did you and your mum or as a family ever have conversations about death and dying? No, not at all. You didn't back in the day. You know, even now, I don't really want to talk about it, uh, I'll be honest with you. You know, we're, me and my wife have been asked by our accountant to do our wills for the last five or six years. And we, you know, we seem to keep putting it off, keep putting it off, keep putting it off. And I don't know whether there's something in the back of our minds saying, you know, why are we writing our death wishes when we're still, as we feel, healthy and, you know, uh, in good spirits and all that. But, no, it, it is one of those things. I haven't got a problem. I have had such a great life. I had 22 years as a footballer. I've had 22 years going into my 23rd year now in the media. Life just gets better for me. Uh, and it's one of those. So if it ended tomorrow, you know, I've had such a wonderful time. I don't want it to, of course. But if it did, you know, I'll, I'll, I'm able to say, you know, wow, there's nothing that I haven't done that I wanted to do. What do you think stops us from having those conversations? You know, you were describing how there might be something in the back of your head that says, well, I'm fit and healthy, so actually why do I want to talk about my, you know, wishes for the end of life or death or, or make some practical plans that are very sensible, like having a will? Um, like you just said, you know, in case something happens tomorrow. What, what do you think stops us from having those conversations? Uh our family, really, you know, um, you want to be there. I want to see my grandkids grow up. I really do. Um, but I also think, like I just said to you there, if it ended tomorrow, great. You know, I've had a great life, but I don't want it to end. But, you know. So we don't, we don't want to think about it. Yeah, we just really don't want to think about it. it that's one of those unanswerable questions that, that um, you know, cleverer people than me uh, can't answer. Well, I think, you know, uh, uh, there's lots of people who, um, you know, we work with as an organisation and, and some people will have had those conversations um, and, um, you know, they, they might have had open conversations about death and dying. They might have done their wills and made plans for the future. And we try and encourage people to do that and to have those conversations. And hence, this is a part of this podcast because we know, we know how important those things can be. So one example is, you know, if someone dies and the family are grieving, but there isn't a will, so, so those things have become a bit more complicated, then when, when you're grieving and you're bereaved, you've got enough to deal with, you know, without having to, the, the, the additional complications of, 
of financial affairs. Um, so it, it, it can make things just a bit easier. And I think also with the will making, I mean, certainly in, in my experience, my experience at work and people I've spoken to um, is that, yeah, it's not the easiest thing to do because they're not the easiest conversations to have. But actually, if you do it and you do it in one afternoon, then you can pack it away in a drawer and it's done. Mm-hmm. I agree 100%. You know, and I am one of those dinosaurs. Don't do what I do, but do what I say because I'm always preaching the thoughts that you just said there. Uh, and then when it comes to me, I'm sort of like thinking, oh, do I really want to talk to someone? Do I really want to write that down? You know, and uh, but I'm great at giving advice. I'm not sure I'm as great at taking it, but uh, I understand what you're saying. And so there was no conversations with your mum about her, her wishes at the end, or did she ever express what she wanted for a funeral or um, um, her, her end of life? Well, I knew my mum so well that I knew how I could make, give her a good send-off and um, make sure that, you know, and legacy, which I have to say, I am probably now the only person alive who thinks about her on a constant basis. Um, So, yeah, she's made an impression on her youngest son. Mm. And um, what 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 was her send off like? What was her funeral like? Uh, well, she loved a good time. My mom. I was born on Christmas Day uh, <clears throat> in 1957, and and she never forgave me because she missed the Christmas Eve party. Right. <laughs> um, it, it's it's incredible, really. When you when you look at you know, I look at my son's partners and how they, in pregnancy, look after the, the their unborn child and make sure that they do everything one hundred percent right. My mom, uh, she used to smoke, she used to drink, and she missed the Christmas Eve party, but she made the New Year's Eve party. And they used to keep you in hospital back in that day. But she discharged herself and uh, they went out and had a good time. And my older brother ended up looking after this baby that had been born about seven days earlier. Um, so, so uh, yeah, no, she, so we had a send off in her memory what she would, she, uh, she loved Simply the Best uh, by Tina Turner. So we played that. Um, she used to sing that uh, to me. And uh, Mary's boy child, Christopher, was born on Christmas Day. Obviously, Mary's boy child, Jesus Christ. Um, so I remember that song from being a kid. Mm. How lovely. What was your mum's name? Irene. Irene, okay. Irene Livingston. So... We had Irish ancestry, um, but she was born and bred in Middlesbrough and lived next door but one in Valley Road in Groveville to the famous Brian Clough. Wow. I wonder whether that um, 
inspired some of your your career? <laughs> well, um, you know, it, it really was. My career is all about fate. I have to say, the things that have happened in my career have all been because of fate. That's the way I look at it. You know, my dad made me go into the Royal Navy. There was no ifs or buts. You can imagine in this day and age, me saying to my kids, you've got to join the Army or the Navy or the Air Force, or you've got to do this job. No, I wouldn't even think of it. And certainly that's taken me that far the other way that now, you know, I never put any pressure on my boys to do anything, do what, do what you want. But he made me join the Royal Navy, marched me down to the recruiting office, said, you'll be no good in Middlesbrough. You know, the police will be haunting you the whole time because he got haunted by the police. Being the only black person on our estate, he would regularly get arrested if there was any trouble. People would would point the finger at dad, even though he was probably at work or at home watching the telly or whatever. So he marched me down to the recruitment office, even though I had an opportunity to be an apprentice footballer at Middlesbrough. Uh, I'm not sure I would have got it, but I was told to wait and see. Um, so I joined the Navy and the good fortune and where fate came into play, the Navy football team were training there we played against Portsmouth. I scored a couple of goals. They asked how old I was and they said he's 16 year old. So they bought me out the Navy Portsmouth uh, for 200 pounds. Um, and then, you know, if I talk about that was the start of my playing career. And then when I was coming towards the end of my career, um, I was at uh, Sheffield United and on the last day of the 93-94 season, we got relegated, uh, but I ended up going to Bradford City. Bradford City was good for me because I was made coach by Lenny Lawrence, who was the manager that took me there. And when he got sacked and fell out with the chairman, uh, I got the job. So uh, that worked out brilliantly for me. In my second season uh, as manager, we managed to get promotion to what is uh, these days the championship. And then uh, Sky took over coverage of the Football League in September 96-97 um, season. And... Um, uh, we, I got manager of the month. Uh, that that month, we had a really good run, and Sky then asked me to go and cover a game for them. And then uh, fate would have it that, you know, when I left managing at Stoke, I went into working for Sky. So everything's done for a reason. Yeah, an incredible list of achievements as well. Do you know what I was just thinking there, Chris, when you were telling a brief version of, 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 of your career so far. I was just thinking about um, what your dad thought about you then being bought out of the Navy um, after it was his, his, his belief that it was the kind of best thing for you at the time. Well, I've still got the letter uh, from the Commodore uh, in um, Portsmouth. Uh, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I had to go to him for a letter 
to say if things didn't work out as a footballer that I could go back to being in the Navy. And he gladly wrote me out a letter. So that satisfied my dad immediately. And then we had a family friend in Middlesbrough. Not a family friend, I have to say. When I was, uh, I'm talking rubbish again. When I was 14, I played men's football on a Sunday. Uh, and a fella called Alan Ingledew was the manager of Beechwood and Easterside Youth Club. Uh, but it was a senior team. They played in a senior league. And so I would play for him every Sunday. So as reward for that, he would take me to watch Middlesbrough and Leeds United alternatively on a Saturday, just because I did him a favour on a Sunday. And uh, he opened the world for my mum and dad when I became a pro so he would drive them down to Portsmouth to watch me, to Swindon, all over, you know, the country. So, yeah, so that was that was great for them uh, to be able to see their son. And then, you know, the acceptance and the proudness for my dad was evident to see. The Great Daffodil Appeal means even more to us in 2021 than previous years. Marie Curie nurses have been on the front line of the pandemic, providing vital care. At the same time, we've been unable to fundraise as normal. Please donate what you can. Your support would mean the world to dying people and their loved ones. Visit mariecurie.org.uk forward slash daffodil. You mentioned before, Chris, that your dad had had, had a very long illness. Um, are you able to talk about your dad's death? Um... Yes, sort of. Um, we knew he had um, bowel cancer and melanoma. Um, he'd been ill for for a while. And we were in uh, the general hospital in Middlesbrough. And um, he was on, for about three days, I would say, he was on death's door. And then uh, all of a sudden, he perked up, which is incredible, but I've heard it happens. And he looked perfect, you know, from being this ill fellow in, in the bed, he all of a sudden became back to himself again. And um, he said to me, take me home, take me to, back to our house. He wanted to die in our house. Uh, he'd had this thing, but the only reason I couldn't allow that to happen was because my mum would never have gone in the front room if he'd have died at home. So I said to him, okay, I'll try and sort it out. But I spoke to the nurse and everything. I went, wow, he looks fantastic. She said, trust me, um, um, he'll be dead by in the morning. I went, it's the best he's looked. She said, we know it happens. It happens a lot. Uh, it looks, you know, Looks can be deceiving, so to speak. Um, and so I don't have a regret about that, only because I know what it would have, you know, the after effects to my, for my mum. But, yeah, that's a memory still with me. 
Yeah, and I think that um, that decision about whether you know somebody's going to be able to die at home, then everybody who lives in that home um, or everybody in the family needs to be involved in that, don't they? And they also need to be okay with it, I think, as well. And it's it's a, it's not an easy one. Absolutely, yeah. I don't. I have no regrets over that one. You know, it's not like I beat myself up over it. You know, because I know it, the consequences would have been far worse than me making that decision to not take him home. Mm. And where was your mum when she died? Uh, she was at home. Yeah, well, my mum wouldn't go into hospital. You know, she had thrombosis. Uh, and every time she, you know, she went there, they'd say there's something else wrong with her. You know, so she was one of those who battled through it completely, you know. So, um, you know, the different circumstances between my mum and my dad. She, you know, she would be happier at home and not in the hospital. Whereas, you know, from a family point of view, it was the opposite with my dad. What was your dad's name? Well, his real name was Alamami. Uh, which translated into English, he was born in Sierra Leone, West Africa, was Albert. So everyone called him Albert. Chris, can you tell us about what what helps you with your grief and, and bereavement? Well, after my mum died, it was awful. Um, I think it's the first time that morning uh, that my kids heard me cry out loud. And I thought, when I've seen people, you know, on telly or funerals and stuff like that, funerals slightly different, but when you're given the news that your mum's died and you have uncontrollable grief and uh, hurt. Uh, so I had that on the day she died uh, and it stays with you. It, stay, it really stays with you for such a long time if you don't speak to people. And now I'm learning more about myself and more about the help that's out there. I just wish I'd have spoken to someone who could have helped me along the way because you bottle it up, you keep it to yourself. And uh, I ended up, you know, the first year of anniversary, I feel I'm the only one that remembered. So you end up taking it out on your loved ones and they don't really know what, what's going on because you're not explaining why you're not in a good mood or, you know, it's awful. Mm. And can you think of any things that did help you over, the, over that time? Time's a great healer. You know, that's... That's the great thing about time and events that sad events that happen in your in your time. I would say that throwing in throwing myself into um, fundraising and help uh, and being available to do those sort of things took my mind away from it and helped me come to terms with it because it's not easy. It's certainly not easy. And, you know, like I said, 
if I'd have spoken to someone, they probably would have helped me along the way a lot quicker. Um, but what you do is you put a mask on, you go to work, you smile and you laugh. And it's only when you're alone with your own thoughts, because you're not that type of person. I'm not that type of person who sits there and mopes around. And so when you, when you do, people think, oh, what's the matter with you? So you put on a facade, you know, <sighs> breathe in, go into that room and be, you know, it's yourself, but it's not your inner self. It's your outside self. Can I ask now, you've touched on this a bit, but do you ever think about your own death? Um, I do, yeah. I, I do from time to time a lot, you know. Um, I think what would happen if I wasn't here? And that's why I try and make sure that everything, you know, is set up for my two sons. All, I tried to explain th this to my oldest son last year, basically. The reason why I'm working now is for them. You know, and he says, no, you love it, Dad. You love it. And I do. I do love it. But I'd also love to be on a beach in Barbados. So, you know, I'd, I'll do all those sorts of things. But that isn't what it's about. It's about being here for your grandkids, being here for your own kids and being in a position to still make their life comfortable when I'm no longer here. Have you spoke to your sons about death or your death? No, no, not at all. Not at all. It, you know, I, no, I shouldn't say this, I'm touching wood now. I am very rarely ill, you know, so even though I'm a shadow of the person that I was five years ago in terms of fitness and strength and power. Um, I'm still, even though I'm weak, I'm not ill weak. I'm just weak uh, in frame and stature uh, and things like that. So basically, you know, th they do worry about that. My wife worries about that, but I don't. I just consider it, you know, getting old and, you know, my body has been punished for 22 years playing football. And it's not like today, you know, if it was, if it was today, probably I would have had a, a lot of time off uh, throughout most of the seasons that I played when I wasn't injured. A lot of time off, but you played when you were sometimes only 40% fit. But the, the circumstances for that was the manager wanted you to play. Um, you wanted to play as a person and you needed the money. So football was based around appearance money. Whereas today, you know, the wages, you know, of, not of every footballer, but the big, you know, the top footballers, the players who played in the leagues that I played, can earn significant money. But back in those days, you you actually played because you not only loved the game, but you needed the money as well. I am. Um... 
I can hear what you're saying there about that kind of levels of fitness. So, you know, rather than sort of illness, but actually just feeling, um, you know, not as fit, um, you know, as, um, as, as you did five years ago. Um, so I asked the question about whether you talk to your sons and I, I kind of, um, I know you mentioned earlier that your, your, you and your wife, your accountant, has been talking to you both about, um, you know, doing a will and getting things down and writing. And what we do know is that, um, you know, people might often think that wills are just about money, and um, but but they're not. And you can also put in your will, um, your your end of life wishes or your funeral wishes, you know, some kind of simple funeral wishes. So I'm guessing you've not had those conversations with your son, sons, um, but it sounds like you and your wife are still considering, um, you know, m m making a will. We're going to do it uh, over the next couple of weeks. Uh, we're sort of like uh, looking at... Uh, which of my sons would like what of memorabilia and, you know, jewellery and possessions. Uh, uh, we're making them partners within the company so they can take over things from us. Um, so we're doing all that and that will be in place in the next two weeks. So, you know, eventually, you know, we've come round to doing what should be done properly. And sometimes that's a great opportunity, actually, if if you are planning on getting it written down, that can be a great opportunity to begin a conversation. You know, the conversation doesn't need to go on for weeks, but it might be, I know I know people aren't going around to each other's houses at the moment, but, you know, if, if, if a family are together or near each other and then, you know, you were able to say, um, oh, at the minute, uh, you know, the next couple of weeks, we're going to be doing our will. And that can be a great opportunity for families to start to have a conversation about death and dying, you know, where they might feel comfortable enough to have it. I know sometimes lots of people say, oh, don't talk about that. Um, but, but those conversations can be helpful as well, uh, Chris. Yeah, they can, um, and I I know exactly where you're coming from, and I and I would you know I I would be sat in your position uh, and saying it to to other people. Where whereas I think if I sat down with my kids, they all oh, go go away, Dad. You know, look at you. You know, you, we see you every other day on the telly you know what what's the matter with you don't be so morbid um but it has to be done it will be done and um certainly over the ne next couple of weeks once the the wills are prepared i think it's important that we get the family together and say look you know it is it isn't a conversation that should be taken lightly this is important um, this is how we would like our send-off. It's very difficult at this moment in time through this pandemic, um, you know, to plan any sort of send-off, uh, really. So you hopefully want to get through that. You know, we, we have animals at home and we have a, a Shetland ponies ashes uh, in a box in our dining room um 
waiting to bury him. And he died last March, you know, and the reason why we've not been able to bury him is because there's two girls that come in and help us with the animals and we want them to be there when we give him a send off. So, you know, th that's just with an animal. So you can imagine what it's like for people who lose, you know, anyone through illness or through the pandemic, how difficult it's been for them. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, I think you mentioned, you mentioned the word morbid there, you know, and that your sons would kind of say, oh, well, you know, shut up, dad, because, you know, why are you being morbid? And, and I think, you know, lots of people do see those conversations about death as morbid, don't they? And I, I totally get that, because, um, you know, it can be. And, and I think we have, we, 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 we want to have such a focus on kind of life and living. Um, and in, in, in our work, um, as, as, as you've experienced, Chris, as well, and I know that you're a huge ambassador and supporter of Marie Curie, um, is that we want to support people to live um, as fully as possible, um, you know, right, right up until the end. I've got two more questions left to ask you. And one is, how would you like to be remembered? Ooh, that's an interesting one. Um, uh, someone who likes a laugh, you know, I think that's evident now when I'm on any television program or whatever, I like to go on there and have some fun and make it entertaining for the people who are watching. Um, so I'd like to be remembered as, as someone who who's had some fun, had a fantastic career, fantastic life, got a brilliant family. Um, and uh, yeah, it's hard though, isn't it? You know, writing your own obituary wouldn't be something on my list. That's for other people to say, you know, how, you know, how much we enjoyed him or, you know, the only thing I would say is, when some of my heroes, you know, Big Jack Charlton died recently, the pouring of tributes should be done, in my opinion, you know, when he's alive, you know. Captain Tom, who's just been incredible for the NHS, be fantastic if Mary Curie could find someone like uh, Tom, that would take care of a lot of the hospices and the care. Um, but he's just been amazing. He's been a hero. And he had the best year of his life from 99 to 100. Uh, it's a shame he died. Uh, it's a massive shame. But he had, and he'll say it himself, the one best year of his life, um, you know, I've had a million of those years <laughs> uh, coming up to now. So like, you know, like well done to him. And I just think, oh, you know, could I have done any more than what I've done? Yeah, maybe not. Mm. My last question. Um, can you tell us what it's meant for you to speak on the Marie Curie podcast today, Chris? 
Well, as you said, um, thankfully I've been involved in work for Marie Curie that's taken us over a million pounds and it, it's been a pleasure for me to do that. You know, it, it, it's something I had to do, you know, from the moment my mum died and was looked after by a Marie Curie nurse uh, who, you know, went above and beyond. I thought I need to do that um, for Marie Curie. And so I've climbed Kilimanjaro. I go to the brain game every year. Obviously it was canceled this year where generous people uh, come along and contribute. Uh, there are all sorts of um, charitable events along the way. And this year has been a very, very difficult year for all charities, but certainly when the pandemic came around, it was March. March is the biggest month for Marie Curie. So they have felt it. And so, you know, it's important that people, you know, if they can help those charities, then please do. Well, Chris Kamara, thank you for joining me on the Marie Curie couch today and sharing your stories about Irene and Alamami slash Albert and thank you for all the masses of support you give our charity ah oh, brilliant thank you it's all of it's a pleasure and uh, you know Marie Curie has been as good to me as I have to them So that's all for this episode of On the Marie Curie Couch. We hope it's got you thinking about matters of life and death and perhaps starting those conversations with your own friends and family. Marie Curie's here to help. From planning ahead to coping with bereavement, you can talk through any concerns you have around the end of life with our support line team, which also includes specially trained nurses. Call us on 0800 090 2309 or search Marie Curie online. This podcast is produced and edited by Marie Curie with support from Ultimate Sound and Vision and the music featured is Time Lapse by Panoceanic. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please do like and subscribe. Thanks for listening and until next time, goodbye.